I would like to show, you know, future justice stakeholders, I'd really like to show them the system from the perspective of self-represented litigants so that they can see it as a system that operates in a particular, a particular manner. And it's not just a natural system that sort of is the way it is, but it's really operating, you know, for the benefit of system players. It's not operating for the benefit of people. Hello, and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, otherwise known as Prof. Julie Mack, and I'm the founder <laughs> of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And before Julie tells you about our guest today, who I have to just briefly say I absolutely love, and she's a wonderful wonderful person. Before we get into that, I just want to put in a quick little plug again uh, to say if you're enjoying our podcast, we would love it if you could go over to iTunes and give us uh, a rating, maybe even five stars. Um, <laughs> and even better would be a review, especially if it's positive. <laughs> so if you have the time and the inclination, we'd love for you to write a little review or at least give us a rating because it really does help in getting our podcast up in the charts and out to more people. So please consider doing that. We would absolutely love it. And of course, we always like your feedback, positive or negative. So our conversation today, you're probably all really intrigued now because Dana has told you <laughs> that she really loves this person. Our conversation today is with Ilana Luther. And first and most important, Ilana is the founding director of NSRLP East. Yay. which is based in the Schulich School of Law at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Lana was originally a prosecutor, but she has a background as her career developed and as we talk about in this conversation in law and policy. And that I think is, is really where her heart is now. Uh, she is also the director of the Access to Justice and Law Reform Institute of Nova Scotia and teaches poverty law and law reform at the Schulich School. So we talked in our conversation about what drew her to the policy and law reform side of law. And she also shares some of the influences on her work and on her values, as well, of course, as her plans for growing NSRLP East into an organization that reflects and can advocate for self-represented litigants in the Atlantic provinces. So let's listen. So Elena, thank you so much for talking to me today. We've been planning to have this conversation for some time now. So there's a lot of anticipation here. Uh, I always love talking to you and I think we're going to be able to fill up the next 20 minutes very easily. So let me get right down to business. Uh, the first thing I'd like people to know about you and your work over the last decade or so is that you really do have a focus on policy and system changes. And that has been both as the executive director of the uh, Nova Scotia Access to Justice and Law Reform Institute, and now in addition, as the director of the new NSRLP East. 
So yes. I know you started in practice, but yeah. you obviously felt that you were drawn towards being a policy geek for want of a better yeah. term. So <laughs> what was that that, you know, I'm sure there are people listening to this who might have started in law, but, you know, are also feeling themselves drawn towards policy work. Um, yeah. what, what was it that, that drew you and what makes you excited and passionate as I know you are about working for systems change? Um, so uh, yeah, when I started off uh, in my legal career, I did, I worked in a couple broken systems. Before going to law school, I did my MA at York uh, in both contemporary and historical Marxist theory. <laughs> now you're uh, laughing hysterically at this. Is this because you're <laughs> telling me that you studied Marxism as an undergraduate? Okay, well, that's okay. No, as, a as a graduate, so I oh, did an MA right. in Marxist theory. So when I arrived to law school, um, immediately what really grabbed me um, was poverty law. Right. So uh, I worked, yeah, I worked at the Community Legal Aid Services Program all the way um, through law school. Uh, and then when I left law school, I worked in the clinic system. I worked at uh, Dundurn Legal Services in right. Hamilton, Ontario. And I did mainly uh, Ontario Works and ODSP appeals. I did a lot of uh, residential tenancies. So benefits uh, appeals and, a lot of and residential tenancies, yeah, right. Exactly. And I think the work we did helped a lot of people. But after a while, you start to think like, am I just running people? Mm. Um, so the reason we wanted to get people onto Ontario Disability Support Program, I don't know what the rates are now, in Ontario, being in Nova Scotia, but back then, uh, welfare rates were really, really low. So Ontario Works was like $580, but Ontario Disability Support Program uh, was about $960. I mean, that makes a huge, huge difference, difference in right. people's lives. And to think that someone living on, you know, 500, less than $600 a month isn't going to suffer from anxiety, um, depression, all sorts of stress-related illnesses is absurd. So what we were doing is we were taking these clients who were completely traumatized by the social assistance system and running appeals to get them onto um, ODS. disability because yeah. they, that would that would almost double their monthly income. It exactly. sounds like right. It's making life a lot more reasonable. But after a while, I realized, oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't think I'm changing the system. I'm just running people through the system. Anyways, and I, there was good work, but I really felt a need, like, look, the system has to change. I decided to make a change. Uh, so instead of doing legal aid in Ontario, I started doing legal aid in Nova Scotia. So for those that don't know, the legal aid system in Ontario and the legal aid system in Nova Scotia are quite different. Actually, we have a completely different system. So in Ontario, we have the clinic system. It's a, it's like right. what we call like a poverty law system that really focuses on benefits and residential tenancy. Yeah, exactly. But that's not how it works in Nova Scotia. So in Nova Scotia, we have one poverty law clinic, one clinic that does social assistance and housing appeals, and that's at the law school. That's the only the only people, one in the whole province. Only one in the whole province. So, anyways, I started working at Legal Aid in <laughs> rural Nova Scotia. I was seeing the child protection system in rural Nova Scotia, and I just did not understand what I was seeing. So, I started doing research, 
because of the research nerd that I am, and I started coming across articles by a professor in Nova Scotia called Roly Thompson. I don't know if you know Roly. Yes, I do. Uh, anyways, he became, you know, my mentor. Uh, applied to do my PhD at Dell uh, with him because he was really an expert in the child protection system. And so what I did was I really wanted to, my PhD was really just to track how the heck did this system end up the way it was? Mm -hmm. um, to me, it seems like a system that was focused on policing poor people. Uh, and in the course of trying to understand all this, this whole pattern of law reform that made us, you know, not see <laughs> some of the dangers inherent in the system. Uh, I really started to love law reform. I did start to see the potentials of law reform. Like sometimes litigation just doesn't work. Sometimes the system just, it's sometimes it's so coherent, the system that it really won't allow you to litigate and change the system. Like to change the law in that way, but you need yeah. policy reform at a more systemic level. So, so exactly. I know you see child protection as an area that you're very passionate about. What is it about the brokenness of the child protection system that really fires you up the most? I think what fires me up the most is the fact that we are, this is a way that we have chosen to protect, uh, or this is the way we have chosen to serve the most vulnerable families um, in society and the most vulnerable children. And I, mm -hmm. I really see that we're doing um, a disservice to these to these families like these are families suffering from poverty um from you know social exclusion uh suffering from the effects of uh colonization and systemic racism and we take a very uh residual approach so um what that means is you know we don't take a holistic approach to supporting the family instead we blame the parents you know yes. we don't look at how society has put the family in this position you know where they're really suffering they need support instead we say okay you're not you know a family that can support yourselves um you need help from outside well you are we depict them then as a danger right and we take their children away and we take their children away and i cannot imagine a more terrible thing to do to someone you know uh a, a greater now there are going to be people listening elena yeah. who are going to be saying or thinking yes but you know there are some families where you really do have to remove children where they really are in that kind of danger and you know aside from all these structural factors that you've pointed out if a child is in danger, there still needs to be an intervention. So what, what yeah. would you say? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. So I, I don't have the stats in front of me right now, but I can tell you that it's something like 9% of child protection cases um, actually involve physical and sexual assault like or risk of so physical less than 10 percent are in in any kind yeah. of actual physical danger is what yes. you're saying and I right. mean, 
the rest of the cases involve what's called, you know, what involve neglect, involve um, poor living conditions of different yeah, kinds. Yes, sometimes exactly, and caused by poor living conditions and exposure to domestic violence is about one third of cases. What a really disturbing system in Nova Scotia right now. Um, we have what it's called a pro-charge, pro-prosecution, pro-arrest policy. <laughs> and what that means is that when someone is trying to leave a situation of family violence, they call the police. And, or let's say there's been an assault in the home, they call the police, the police show up, the police are going to prosecute that charge. Right. Uh, and the police are going to call child protection. Mm-hmm. And even if you know the the child has you know not been involved uh, even if this is a, a single occurrence in the home and they're going to call child protection but it's an automatic they, referral yeah an automatic yeah. referral they have a duty to report and mm. our legislation says that even if a child has become aware of a, a single incident of domestic violence in the home they could become um, a child in need of protection. So there's real nuances. I mean, I understand when people say, you know, that, you know, if a a child has been abused, you have to remove the child. I absolutely believe that. But there there are nuances that sometimes we don't see in these legal definitions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are effects that we don't see. So why is it an access to justice issue? Well, let's say a person is trying to leave a situation of family violence, Mm -hmm. uh, and they call police for their safety, you know, they're going to engage the child protection system, and they may be at risk of losing their child. Well, a lot of people in marginalized communities know that, and they are not going to They don't call the police. Right. No. Right. Right. I mean, the other thing that I saw, because I was briefly, as I've told you, a social worker myself, is the other way in which this is this is never treated as a sort of holistic problem is that once there's been intervention, then the kinds of requirements that are set in order for someone to get their children back or for their child to be able to stay are often completely I saw this as a social worker are completely unrealistic. They are, you know, expectations of them turning their lives around in the face of all kinds of poverty and and sometimes, you know, other kinds of, as you said, domestic violence that they just can't do. So they're almost set up to fail. They are set up to fail. So we have time limits in Nova Scotia. We we just recently reduced the time limits uh, that a family has in order to kind of remediate some pretty, you know, some pretty serious, what can be, you know, serious, maybe there are addictions, maybe there are mental health issues. So let's say you're in rural Nova Scotia, you have, you know, a year and a half to address um, some of these issues, and you put yourself on a wait list for mental health services. I mean, you could be talking months and months before you even get in to right. see someone. But one thing that we noticed, and this is all of, this isn't even in Nova Scotia, this is all across Canada. I think the only place that chooses not to do this has exercised their discretion is Manitoba. When a child is taken into the temporary care of the agency. Okay, so that's really different. The child's not a ward at this mm. point. The child has, isn't in the permanent care of the agency. At this point, the family is really working. They're taking that year and a half and they're really working to get their lives together to show the agency, look, we can make this a secure place for the child, right? Yes. 
the agency calls Canada Revenue Agency uh, and tells the agency, we have the child, so please take the Canada Child Benefit from the family and give it to us, um, the agency. I've heard this story from so many people now, yeah. yes. So you can imagine yeah, a family in crisis in poverty that's now facing a massive reduction in their income, trying to get their kid back, possibly facing eviction. What could be a more prominent justice issue than being able to keep your your children. Now, I, I said when I asked you this, that I knew that you had a lot of passion for this topic, Elena, but I am going to have to move you on to another one now, because <laughs> so as well as, and I think, I think this gives very, a very good, you know, idea to people listening, though, just why it is that you are the new director of NSRLP East, um, with your passion for policy reform, um, maybe your Marxist credentials. I mean, I don't think we usually require those, but you know, that's totally fine. So in your new role uh, as the first director of a, of a NSRLP chapter for Eastern Canada, what would you say you were most eager to get working on? And are there particular issues that you see as especially important Obviously, child protection is one of them, but are there other issues that you see as especially important for self-represented litigants in Nova Scotia? I would like to show, you know, justice stakeholders, <laughs> and I mm. include law students in that, yes. uh, future justice stakeholders. I'd really like to show them the system mm. uh, from the perspective of self-represented litigants so that they can see it as a system that operates in a particular, a particular manner. And it's not just a natural system that sort of is the way it is, um, but it's really operating, you know, for the benefit of system players. It's not operating for um, the benefit of people. Um, and so one of the things that we've started doing, um, we had actually compiled um, a bunch of qualitative data um, from ex users of the justice system. So. One of the first things that we've done um, for the project is we've gone back and we've had students go through um, and analyze that data. And some of the things that we're seeing, um, yeah, are, are pretty disturbing. Um, one of them is just the pervasiveness of trauma mm -hmm. amongst self-represented litigants, especially Indigenous self-represented litigants. Over and over, what we're seeing is self-represented litigants expressing to us, depicting to us a system that is violent, that is alienating. It's quite shocking. Uh, one yeah. thing I did not count on was women uh, leaving domestic violence, trying to make their way through the calling the police, okay, now they're in the criminal law system, then child protection comes in, now they're in the child protection system, uh, and then they get thrown into the family law system and yes. representing themselves, you know, through through a lot of it. Uh, can you um, even imagine doing no, all of that as a self-representative? And of course, many, many people do do it, but it's horrifying. Um, it's horrifying, but actually one thing that we were amazed was the way that they talk about the system they talk about it as as, as something that is coercive and controlling of mm. them you know it's almost like they're experienced experiencing a similar abuse from the system 
you know, as law students, we never see the system that way. We never, we because never, we, we assume that the system is there to help people and yeah. therefore it will be seen as benign and, you know, sometimes inadequate, perhaps there'll be gaps, but generally benign. I think one of the things I am very excited about is having law students go through these stories, learn about the issues um, facing self-represented litigants. One, one thing that I found to be really beneficial is we have been um, sitting down with stories that um, self-represented litigants have given us about their experience in the justice system. And we talk about them in a way that unpacks uh, the way we typically learn in law school. So the way we typically learn in law school is we are given a fact situation mm -hmm. uh, and then we don't talk about feelings. Uh, what we do is we chop that fact situation up into little pieces and then we get law students to think like engineers. When I was in law school, I was told, you are not a social worker, you are a lawyer. <laughs> and you know, we get them to think like little legal engineers and they get to, you know, yeah, they're the technicians. Yeah, they're little technicians. Uh, and so we get them to really splice up this problem. They put it into silos. And then, you know, they're not really, they're not really allowed to, to engage with the person as a person. They're not really allowed to see the system. And we tend to get like a very siloed there's a disconnect between what you learn about the law and what people actually experience yeah. in the system rural nova scotia has a major focus we just held a session on um, rural access to justice during access to justice week uh, yes. which was great and what we did was we focused on rural um, access to justice across atlantic canada as a whole so we're really trying to make connections um, across atlantic canada as a whole there must be, you know, some influences out there, you know, either personal influences or professional influences that have been really important for you to kind of get to the place that you're at now, because you're certainly not, let's say, uncritical of some of your own education and some of the, the programming that goes into uh, developing lawyers. So what would you say those major influences are? I think, well, of course, uh, Rolly Thompson, Professor yeah. Rolly Thompson was my major influence and I had um, some wonderful profs uh, at Osgood where I did my first law degree at uh, Professor Mary Jane Wasman and yes. Professor Janet Mosher all Nova Scotians <laughs> oddly yes. um, but also I work a lot in community um, and I just I work a lot with just the most incredible community-minded folks and uh, the support, collaboration, the bravery, I mean, the bravery of the people that it took to give us these stories of the justice system that, you know, that we're basically- collected, yes. Yeah, yeah, to try and teach law students, you know, to like think differently. Thank you, Lelena, for this conversation. This has been great. I really appreciate it. <laughs> You and Alana talked about 
so many good things in this conversation. And I was, I really found it so interesting. And from both of you, the back and forth about what you were talking about here, and there's so much to unpack, but I want to start with something that she said early on, which really, really struck me, her question to herself in her career at a certain point saying, am I just running people through a broken system? And that that reflection led her towards law reform. And, you know, as we have discussed, I think, you know, there's, there's a number of people who end up kind of feeling that way and, and whether or not it leads them to heading towards law reform, it at least gets them thinking about it. And I love that that's the path that Alana has taken. Yeah. I, I thought that that, you know, said so much about her motivation for everything yeah. that she's done subsequently. And, you know, I think that sometimes people get this idea that, you know, all these discussions about law reform and system reform are somehow very theoretical and academic, but they're actually, Alana really, you know, epitomizes, mm-hmm. they're so practical. Mm-hmm. This is about reorienting the system so that it actually serves the needs of the users and it doesn't hurt them and traumatize them, which was something that in her work in child protection, I thought she was especially eloquent yeah. about. Yeah. And um, she said a lot uh, around child protection that I was, you know, rather shocked to hear. But the the biggest thing that shocked me was when she said that, you know, essentially there are less than 10% of child protection cases that actually involve uh, physical or sexual abuse. And that's, that's shocking. And as you talked about, basically, that means the rest of them are, you know, kind of under the umbrella of Neglect cases, right? Right, right. which and is I'm sure there are going to be some 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 children absolutely that need to be removed and taken to safety. But what's so interesting is that, and having spent a little bit of time myself as a social worker, is that the assessment of what is neglect is yeah. so incredibly subjective. It's so subjective. So what yeah. we've got here is supposedly an objective system a legal process, making decisions, incredibly important decisions for the future of families, but they're making them inevitably with all kinds of subjectivity. And and I thought the other part that really resonated for me from my own experience, short experience, but, you know, one that's really stayed with me of being part of of working in that system was that we often set people up to fail because Mm -hmm. as families first came to the attention of, of child protection, they are usually given, you know, a set of expectations that they have to meet in order not for further action to be taken. And it's so common for those expectations to be totally unrealistic mm-hmm. for that family to achieve for economic reasons or for other kinds of social reasons. And I love that all of those experiences of Alana's and, you know, everything that she's worked on has kind of led her up to this point where within this past year, she has become the director of NSRLP East, which we're so excited about. They're already doing just awesome things over oh, there. We really, oh my gosh, there's so much already on, on their website. We encourage you very much to go check out nsrlpe.com. And we, of course, will put a link uh, in the description of the podcast. But I love, you know, when you asked her what her goal was with NSRLP East, and the first thing she said was that she wants to show system stakeholders the perspectives of self-represented litigants and, you know, get them to understand that this system is operating for the benefit of system players, not for the public. Right. And how many times have we heard that um, Mm -hmm. from SRLs ourselves? So congratulations to Alana for a fantastic first 
going on for a year now, I think. Almost a year. We're coming up on a year, yeah. Of NSROP East. And if you are an SRL in the Atlantic provinces, because um, they are very committed to this being an organization that will reflect the perspectives, the experiences, not just of SRLs in Nova Scotia, but all the Atlantic provinces, Mm -hmm. please feel free to get in touch. Uh, I'm sure they would love to hear from you. And uh, big congratulations to Alana and her team on a great almost first year. Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Charlotte Sullivan, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. First, we have a piece from the Law Times on the recent debate in Ontario regarding a minimum wage for articling students. It may surprise some of our listeners to hear it, but there is currently no minimum wage for articling students in Ontario. The Federation of Ontario Law Associations, or FOLA, has spoken out against the recommendations of the Law Society of Ontario's Professional Development and Competence Committee, which has recommended not to compensate the minimum wages of articling students. The Vice Chair of FOLA, Douglas Judson, has stated that those advocating for no minimum wage frame the issue as though compensating articling students is some value add, ignoring that the legislation excluding certain legal community members from being paid is itself an aberration. Indeed, articling is already a hurdle for law students and recent graduates seeking to become lawyers. Licensing candidates who cannot find a placement are unable to enter the profession, and the lack of pay for articling students could easily worsen that bottleneck. Judson has stated that some people are stuck in a bygone path, viewing articling as some dead poet society-oriented learning experience, but that times have changed and that articling is students essentially working to learn their craft. They should be remunerated, just like they would be in any other apprenticeship. Fola also notes numerous studies revealing that racialized and otherwise marginalized members of the bar receive the lowest pay in the legal profession when they are students, including when they are articling students, and that this trend persists as seniority grows. Economic stratification occurs in relation to concerns related to equity. One criminal justice lawyer, Emily Dyer, notes that for someone who comes from privilege, they may be able to take a year and not be paid and work for that year, which might be just fine for them. But some articling students come out of law school owing thousands of dollars, and most cannot afford to article for free. Per Dyer, if competent young lawyers are not going into justice fields and people from less privileged backgrounds are cut off from the profession, that is bad. More diversity is never going to be a bad thing for the profession. She suggests that lawyers who cannot afford to hire a student for the full articling term can use more creative avenues than avoiding paying them entirely such as sharing an articling student with another lawyer or mentoring someone articling elsewhere. The Black Law Students Association of Canada has also released a statement about the LSO's failure to implement a mandatory minimum wage for articling students, stating that it is their unequivocal view that a failure to impose a mandatory minimum wage for licensing students will disproportionately affect articling students who are economically disadvantaged, many of whom are Black, Indigenous, and people of colour. As expressed by the minority view of the committee tasked with the, by the LSO with reviewing this issue, a refusal to implement a minimum wage undermines the goal of diversifying the legal profession. No doubt this intensifying debate will maintain steam over the weeks to come. 
For our second piece of news for today, we have a bit of an unusual highlight for all of you, a story from the Lawyers Daily on a historic first at the Supreme Court of Canada, an intervention by Nunavut Legal Aid. Nunavut Legal Aid will be intervening in the case of R.V. Sharma, a case involving an Indigenous woman of Ojibwe ancestry who pleaded guilty to trafficking drugs at the age of 20 to avoid homelessness for herself and for her young daughter. Sharma is arguing that the two-year mandatory minimum sentence infringes her charter right to freedom for cruel and unusual punishment, and that the restriction on conditional sentences similarly violates her charter rights to liberty and equality. She also notes that the criminal code requires that all available sanctions, other than imprisonment, must be considered by the courts, particularly for Indigenous offenders. The historic cases of R.V. Gladu requires judges to consider the historical and life circumstances of Indigenous offenders during sentencing. None of it legal aid will intervene to argue for the importance of conditional sentences for Indigenous offenders. Madeleine Redford, chair of the Legal Services Board of Nunavut, says that they will be bringing their territorial perspective on the effect of the Safe Streets and Communities Act, which has effectively removed the judge's discretion on being able to consider conditional sentences for certain offenses. 85% of the population of Nunavut is Inuit, and the territory is unique insofar as most offenders are sent outside the territory to serve their prison sentences. Redfern emphasizes that it's been shown time and time again that the need to assist an individual to be able to rehabilitate and reintegrate back into the community. They need programming, they need support, and ideally that ultimately everyone needs to be aware of the effects of completely removing an individual from their support systems. Canada especially suffers from a crisis of over-incarceration of Indigenous persons, argues Nader Hassan, Sharma's lawyer. The appeal will be important in determining whether restrictions on conditional sentences are constitutional and the participation of Nunavut Legal Aid in this case representing a unique perspective and one never previously highlighted at the Supreme Court is a watershed moment for legal aid in the underserved far north of the country. Finally, for our third and last piece, we have a story from SLAW, Canada's online legal magazine, about a new tort of family violence in Ontario following the groundbreaking case of Alualia v. Alualia. In this case, a couple that met and married in India, immigrated to Canada in the early 2000s, and separated in 2016 contended with the wife's allegations that her husband had been physically and mentally abusive throughout the marriage. She claimed damages for the abuse she endured throughout the marriage, essentially pleading a tort of family violence rather than the specific torts of assault, battery, or emotional distress. In this historic decision, Justice Mandheim has noted that allowing a family law litigant to pursue damages for family violence is a matter of access to justice. It is unrealistic to expect a survivor to file both family and civil claims to receive different forms of financial relief after the end of a violent relationship. The tort of family violence was thus born. It is defined along the lines of the definition of family violence in the Divorce Act and recognizes that existing torts do not capture the cumulative harm resulting from the pattern of coercion and control at the heart of cases involving family violence. This new tort aims to capture the complexity of trauma resulting from abuse and aligns itself well with recent case law in both Canada and the United States. That concludes this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Please join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.